Before we get into this, let's pray for illumination. Jesus, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us, this written word would join with your living word, that the Holy Spirit would apply this to our lives, that we would understand what you are calling us to, that we would call wisdom from this text, that we would learn, that we would grow as a community in our love for one another and our service of you. God, this is a special passage. I believe there's so much in here, but each heart has a different word they need to hear. Let each person hear what you are saying through your word today. Regardless of my words, regardless of the exposition, let each person hear what they need to hear urgently today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Looking at this passage, my, my thought was, this could be a whole sermon series, let alone one sermon. It's like the greatest hits of Christian teaching in this passage. It's a very special passage, very dense. We might, we might be in this passage again next week, to, to be honest with you, because there's so much in here, and to miss out on any of it would be a terrible thing, I think. It seems like a grab bag of miscellaneous encouragement and teaching. It's kind of like when someone says, uh, do, you know, go, go and run this errand for me. Oh, and don't forget to do this, and don't forget to do this, and don't forget to do this. And they add on to the, that, those, that list until you can't keep anything straight. There's so many things that you have to keep, keep in your mind. But this really is like, a, like a, a Christian primer on how to behave, how to live. If you were to take this passage, I think, uh, like, like, like a few other passages in the Scripture, and just focus on this for a year and do, try to apply what it says, you would do very well as a Christian. You would do very well as a Christian because th this passage in one fell swoop tells us how to relate to our leadership, tells us how to relate to one another in the body, and finally how to relate to God and the work of his Holy Spirit among us. That's a pretty good summary. So this is sort of like a passage we're supposed to take in, we're supposed to hear it, and allow the Spirit to teach us these things. So that eventually the things that are listed in here, as far as commands and behaviors that are encouraged and ways of doing things, become second nature to us. You know, it's kind of like learning a language. The more that you, you listen, you apply the wisdom, you let it speak to you, the more you practice it, the more you remember it, the more you do it, and pretty soon you're doing it secondhand. Anyone that's learned anything uh, from a musical instrument to how to navigate a video game for some of you, you know, you learn the controls, you figure it out, eventually you're proficient in it, and you do it without even thinking. And that's kind of what this passage is about. Uh, it's everything we need to hear in one place. So if, I'm going to break it down just into those sections. The first section talking about how to relate to leadership in the church. Paul says in verse 12, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace to each other, with each other. 
I listened, I listened to a sermon where a preacher was preaching on this passage once. It was clearly, sadly, delivered by a pastor who had been hurt by his congregation. Um, you can see how this could turn into a sideways, you guys really should love me and respect me. You know, these things happen to me. It's so hard. And I, I felt for the pastor that delivered that message, uh, he, he kind of, I, I think that he saw that word and he said, this is my platform to kind of straighten people out so they're nicer to me. So they love me because I feel so beat up. What this passage is saying is that congregations need to be intentional in recognizing and appreciating the leaders among the church body. It says each congregation should be careful not to take people who, who take up leadership in God's church for granted. And the reason is because these leaders work hard among the people of the church as they lead, protect, and care for the people. Leaders among God's church not only do the work of ministry for the people of God, they also carry the emotional burden of the church in many ways. Of course, they should surrender that back to Christ. But everything that happens in the body of Christ kind of goes through a leader. And this is a labor that is prompted by love for the body and the calling of God to exercise that leadership in the church and to use those spiritual gifts. This is the essence of the meaning of the word admonish, to, to care for the people of God, for those who admonish you, for care for you. The leadership is likened to, to a parent with their children, leading, protecting, caring for God's people. When it comes to appointed leaders like myself as your senior pastor, sometimes this appreciation, it's easier to appreciate the person that you see in front. You know, we know he's the pastor. We appreciate him. We're aware of him. It's more natural to recognize that kind of person. And I want to take this moment to say that I feel appreciated by you guys. I do. Well done. I really do appreciate you guys and feel appreciated by you guys. I feel loved. I feel cared for by this body of Christ, both individually as from, from you guys as individuals and corporately as a church. I feel loved and cared for. And I have the, a general sense in my life that you appreciate me, that you acknowledge my ministry and the work I do. And I think you know that I love you all very much. And I, and I tried to show it that whenever I can. I felt very loved and appreciated this entire vacation that I was on as I took three Sundays off to be with my family, thanks to the generosity of this church body and the elders. I never once had fear or sense of dread that somehow I would seem expendable to you once I was gone for a few weeks. Not once. Not once. Not once did I feel intimidated or fearful or concerned. Instead, I felt your love and care for me and my family that whole time. When I announced on August 9th, that I would be gone with the rest of my family uh, for three Sundays. Spontaneous applause broke out. And I know, even though I joked around about it, I know that's because you're glad that I was taking a vacation. And you were happy for me because you, you see that we were tired. We needed a break, especially after COVID. And I know that you were clapping, not because I am something special or amazing, but because you love and appreciate me as a person and what I do for the church. I listened to the sermons and felt very loved the last three weeks. Hearing the worship music, I felt very loved the last three weeks. The sermons were all deep and thoughtful sermons, spirit-inspired as good or better than anything I could do. The worship was beautiful. The special music Julie performed was touching. I appreciated seeing Derek and Chaz running, running the show. I knew the, credit, the setup crew knocked it out of the park every week when I was gone. I knew that Jen was blessing the children. All of this made me feel loved and appreciated. Because as all of this um, top-notch work in ministry was going on, I was on vacation, and I knew you guys were happy for my family for that reason. 
I didn't have any worries of being displaced or forgotten, as many pastors might in that situation. I felt nothing but worship and love on my little cell phone as I sat on the back porch and saw, tried to see bears walking by in the woods in Vermont, listening to the stream. I mentioned all this to our worship team get-together the other day, and someone said, just so you know, just because it went so well while you were going, we still need you here. I appreciate that. I know. In all of that, I feel love and appreciation. Jackie and I are here because we love you guys, not because our friends are here, not because of whatever benefits we receive as pastors in this church. We've had many opportunities over the years as our best friends have left the church and moved on and done other things, maybe joined other churches, uh, seeing our closest friends leave new life. But we have stayed because we love you. We love the church. We're called to this church. And we believe in what God is doing here. It's very easy to take people for granted over time. I don't feel taken for granted of at all. You guys have followed this scripture. But we do take people for granted, right? Husbands take, take, take their wives for granted. Wives take their husbands for granted. Parents take their children for granted. It's easy to do that to each other. I don't feel that way. I do think, however, that this encouragement from Paul is likely not as much focused on like a senior pastor, but more on people that rise up in leadership within the body of Christ. In this culture, if an apostle like Paul appointed a pastor to lead a congregation, in this culture, honor and shame culture, the people would respect that leader, the people would listen to that leader. That's the type of culture that they were in. I think what Paul is getting at here in his encouragement is likely more the idea of acknowledging all of the other people that take up leadership within the body, not just the pastor, not just the senior pastor. Listen to this sentence again, and think about non-pastors among this church when you think about this. Think about people that are taking leadership in the church. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. I think what Paul is saying, what Paul is asking the church to do, including myself, is to be careful to acknowledge people within the body of Christ who rise up and begin caring for others in the body. People who, of their own volition, not because it's their job or because it's what they think they should do, but they decide to admonish and serve others in the church. I think Paul is saying, open your eyes and see who in the body is doing this from the love they have in their hearts towards the body and encourage them carefully and strategically. The reason that we need to encourage those people is because even for the most holy person to be even the most holy person can become discouraged as they serve the Lord from the heart out of love for the body if we don't recognize them for what they're doing. So people that take leadership among the church, they're like little fires in the church. And Paul is saying, keep upon these people love, acknowledgement, appreciation, because these are the people that are going to keep on killing it because they're doing it out of love for God, passion for the church. Keep on encouraging those leaders within your church. Pour gasoline of acknowledgement and holding them in high regard. Love them well, and the ministry will multiply. I feel very loved by the church at this time. My family feels loved. I ask you to consider the people in this body who are serving the Lord and heap upon them also your acknowledgement, your love, and appreciation, and see how very far that will go in spurring them on to bigger ministry within the church. Amen? So many people taking leadership, so many people taking responsibility. This is our responsibility towards the leadership that, ha that rises up within the body. 
to acknowledge not only our, our pastor and our elders, but those who take responsibility have love for the Church of Christ along with the elders and leading the church. I had a whole tempting desire to list a lot of big names, but I knew I'd miss people. I knew that I would. I, there's so many. I could, I could talk for half an hour sharing names and what people are doing in the church. Let's all just recognize those people whenever we see them. The final section of this passage after acknowledging our leadership is encourage everyone to live at peace with each other in the body. In the context of leadership and people within the church, one of the greatest encouragements for leaders and those they lead is to strive for peace with one another as they go together. There are many authoritarian type leadership structures in the world uh, where, where someone has complete authority and they, they use people for what they can perform and do. We say they value people from their neck down, not their neck up. They don't, they don't appreciate people for who they, who they are. And there's many chances to lose peace as people lead one another. And for there to be misunderstandings, miscommunications, hurt feelings, all kinds of things can happen. There are many opportunities, but if both myself and the other leaders in the church make every effort to live at peace with each other, service and life in the body will be a joy. Everyone will be happy. It'll go well. And for my part, I, I am committed to striving for peace with everybody in the church. As far as it depends on me, um, I want to live at peace with everybody. That's my commitment to you. And, and I ask that we all try to make that commitment to live and work at peace with one another. The next part of Paul's teaching is from verses 14 and 15, and it's about the congregation's responsibility towards one another. So this is like, like the one another's of Scripture. Um, there's so many one another, one another's, love one another, be kind to another, one another, forgive one another. You could do a whole study on all the one another's in the Bible. And this is a passage that succinctly tells us how to relate to one another in the congregation. Verse 14, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. That section is pretty loaded, right? That's a lot of work. That's a lot of homework for us. This, is, this section kind of deals with Paul uh, dealing with specific, special situations, special needs within the church, people with unique problems. Who here has a unique problem? <laughs> you feel like you're the only one. So we all have problems is the point, right? Um, this, how do we relate to all these troubled and problem-filled people, right, that are am among us, who are us? First he says, to warn those who are idle. Wow. The church is supposed to lovingly warn those who become, and what this means is undisciplined, irresponsible, or become disorderly. That's what that word means. Idle means undisciplined, irresponsible, or disorderly. This does not involve judging other people, as could easily rise up in a church when you read something like this, but looking at the fruit in a person's life and relationships and encouraging them to engage meaningfully with the ministry at hand, to engage meaningfully with one another, to engage in the ministry that's at hand. And what this really means is we are supposed to, in some ways, shepherd one another in love towards greater growth and service in the body. If you've been here week after week and you are not looking for a person or a place to serve others in the body of Christ by just taking in sermon after sermon after sermon, 
it's time to engage meaningfully with others in the body of Christ. You have a lot to offer. You have a lot to offer. And someone is being robbed of the interaction and the ministry that you could be doing with them. This could mean joining or leading a small group when we launch them. This could mean asking one other person to study the word with you or pray with you. This could mean praying and trying to find a person to get to know more intentionally in our church community. This could mean stepping out to serve in one of the ministries of the church or using your gifts and skills in order to build the fellowship of believers. And one of my favorites, this could mean creating a ministry that you share with the elders, your plans, to feed the poor or help people in our community in some way and bringing others in the body along with you to do this. This is what the elders want to do. We want to support people in the ministries that they develop. So we don't want to be a church that says, here's the ministries, plug into what we're doing, though we do have some, some foundational and central ministries that we could say that about, such as the worship team and children's ministry. We also want to be a church where you hear from God in the context of worship, study, and prayer, and conversation with other people in the body. He gives you a ministry idea, and you think it's from him. You share it with the elders. We pray with you, and we equip you and help you to launch that ministry. Because we're, we're in a unique time and place. No one has been the church in 2020. No one has been the church you know, in the coronavirus pandemic. No one has been the church in this time and place in salvation history. There's ministries needed that we are not aware of that maybe have never been before. When you hear from God, the elders want to support you, want to lift you up, refine that, discern with you, equip you, and get people together to help you to do that ministry. And it could become a ministry of new life. This is, this is uh, one of the exciting things. This is how we avoid, you know, just being, being consumers, being idle, um, kind of just rolling forward without that purpose. But this passage is kind of strong language. It says, in relationship with others, we are told to warn those who are just taking, taking, taking in and warn them to engage for the sake of their own souls and for the sake of Christ's body of the church. It's all, it's all hands on deck all the time with the church. And we all need to be serving in the body in some way in love. We need to encourage, invite, pray, surrender, and go, you know. Sometimes there are difficult conversations uh, that have to happen with those who are being disruptive in the body. This passage talks about it. Many times that's an elder situation, but it's not only an elder situation. If, you, if someone is being disruptive in some way or divisive, you know, these are things that Paul says to us. We need to say something about, have a difficult conversation. Uh, it's a tough job but it's one that must be done so that we don't lose our unity. We've been given unity by Christ as a church body. And if anyone starts to cause trouble and disunity among us, it can sink a church. It sinks churches all the time. You know, when there's disruption, when there's back, back channels and back talk, back talking that is uh, not out in the open. And so this first part of Paul's section on how to relate to one another is pretty, pretty heavy. We urge you, this is not written to the pastor, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Now that's a big, a big ask, but I think it's important. Next, we are told to encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I'm always curious what these words actually mean. So in the Greek, disheartened here means timid, worried, fearful, discouraged, feeling inadequate, lacking confidence, despondent, sad, or weak. That's what disheartened means. 
And for those who either struggle chronically with these things or are experiencing them because of a season of life they're going through, we are told not to resent those people, not to talk about them behind their backs, not to be annoyed by their perceived, perceived neediness, but to simply encourage them in the next steps for them, in the context of who they are and their life, to encourage the disheartened, even the chronically disheartened, to lift them up, not to forsake them, not to ignore them, not to say, whatever, they're always whining all the time. It's not one thing, it's another. These are the things that we have in our flesh where they creep up, right? Where we just start, we start acting not like God. Because God doesn't do that. God doesn't forsake people. As annoying as we can be, as chronic as our problems are, he doesn't forsake people. But we, in our, in our flesh, we do. We just get annoyed. We start talking. We're like, ah, oh, that person's always asking. I'm going to stop. I don't want to, don't even want to talk to them. It says, encourage the disheartened. Don't resent them. Don't be annoyed by them. Get in a relationship with them, you know? The concept of helping the weak, the next part of this passage, has to do with those who are tempted, those who are morally struggling, struggling with sin, who have spiritual shortcomings, or even actual physical limitations. People that have financial needs, those are the weak in this passage. We are to help these people and not disdain them. We're to assign dignity and care to, the, to them, not resent them. And I think most foundationally, we are, we are supposed to remember that we were them at one point, maybe not so long ago, if we are not them currently. I find that sometimes it seems we tend to resent those who most mirror a previous version of ourselves that we don't like very much. We've moved beyond that place Someone else we meet struggles with the same thing we struggle with. We get annoyed by them for not overcoming as quick as we did, right? We're to help the weak, not disdain them, not wonder why they can't get their act together. I think that uh, all of this is in the context of relationship, right? Because through helping the weak, through encouraging the disheartened, we are spending time, presumably, with people. And time makes space for the Holy Spirit. Time with people makes space for the Holy Spirit, and God takes the enemy-making machine that is inside every person, the sin nature, and makes us friends, makes us in relationship with one another rightly. And through that relationship, we lift each other up. But for us who think we are standing firm, help the weak, encourage the disheartened. The Scripture has great encouragement in the New Testament from Revelation 2.5, I love this passage where God advises his people to remember the height from which they have fallen. Repent and do what you did at first. And this passage is about not losing sight of our first love in Jesus and forgetting how much he's forgiven us. And as Jesus says, the person who's been forgiven much loves much. So we must remember, we must take stock of the great forgiveness God has given us in Christ, in our weakness, and never forsake, resent, judge, or behave any other way than a sinner saved by grace in relation to other people. When people are struggling with weakness, temptation, continually falling into sin, not able to get their act together, we are to remember the height from which we have fallen, and we are to reach out in love and help. In case we were kind of checking our boxes and, and limiting um, who we might send this kind of encouragement to, Paul finishes the the, the the phrase saying, be patient with everyone. 
So he basically talks about different, different types of people you'd be patient with. And then he goes, and in case I missed anybody, be patient with everyone. I think that's great. It's a good catch-all. So whoever you have in mind that you, that you have a difficulty, you judge harshly, who you withhold love from for whatever reason, um, because they annoy you, because they bother you, because you think that they're just chronically having problems. Paul says, everyone, everyone we need to give patience to. Be patient with everyone. And in the Greek, that means everyone. You know, that's, it means everyone, you know. And so much of this is just, this, our life is a gifted response. I love this worship song. It says, our, our life is a gifted response. We, uh, we were saved by grace with a, by a patient God who gave him, sacrificed his son to save people who were his enemies. And everything else we do needs to be a response to that action in Christ. And so that's a, that, that's a little bit of humility right there for us to remember. Finally, in the section on how to treat other people in the church, Paul echoes something that Jesus taught perpetually all the time, and which is taught many other places in the Bible, saying in verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. In all things, in all ways, even when you have been legitimately wronged by others, Jesus and Paul, in the testimony of the church, in history, would say, exchange blessing for curse every time. Help and love people who've made themselves into your enemies. Give special care to those people in the body of Christ, because when the weakest parts begin to do just a little bit better, the entire body is lifted up. We've all been forgiven much, and we all must remember that and love much in the body. It's a lot to think on. Join me in prayer just for a moment as we're, as we're continuing the sermon. That Jesus, I just pray that we would, you would remind us of the great salvation you've worked for us in Christ. That while we were still your enemy, you died for us. You are the God that forgave those who nailed you to the cross. You are the God that forgave the thief who was crucified beside you, saying, today you will be with me in paradise. I pray that we as a church would not forget the height from which we've fallen. That we would repent and do what we did, we did at first. That in humility, we would look at other people the way that you looked at us when we were needing a savior, needing some help. That we would actually help people in the name of Jesus. Actually encourage people in the name of Jesus who are struggling, who are chronically having difficulties. That we would help these people that they would find the grace that we have found and that we would find your grace in the midst as well. Help us to treat other people in the body the way that you've treated us, just a little bit like how you've treated us in Christ. And let our life be a gifted response to your grace and your forgiveness, your help in our lives. Thank you for your compassion, for your love, for your mercy. We praise you, God. We want to be like Jesus. Help us. In Jesus' name. Finally, Paul talks about uh, our relationship with God. How are we to relate to God? And Paul has just three encouragements that, if followed, will yield great things in our relationship with God. 
And I find that when I talk to people, they, they mo the Christian people in the church, they mostly feel like they need to work on their relationship with God. They want to grow in their relationship with God. They feel like they aren't growing. I think if we do these things, we could grow. Paul says, rejoice always in verse 16. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice has that root, root word joy in it, right? It's not necessarily feeling joyful all the time, but expressing joy to God based on faith. Paul says, be joyful because God is at work among you and his people. And God promised not to abandon that work. Rejoicing without the feelings of joy in our own hearts are an ex is an expression of our faith in who God is and how God works. God is always cultivating peace, love, and beauty, and other remarkable things out of the rubble of human sin and brokenness. That's what he's always doing. And Paul is saying, rejoice in the work God says he is doing that you might not even currently see. Rejoice because the work is happening for sure if you are in Christ. Rejoice and express joy when things are bleak because you believe God is moving. Because God has promised not to abandon his work in our lives. And for that reason, we are told to rejoice, to express joy, to pray continually, to give thanks. The next level, the next uh, course in that is rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Paul talks about that. So if even in the midst of suffering and turmoil and all these things, we're told to rejoice, it's an act of faith. God, you promised you would not abandon the work that you began in me, but that you would complete that work. You promised that I was saved through Christ, and I believe that my salvation is sure. You promised that you will bring beauty for ashes and a garment of praise for my heaviness. Uh, he's promised us many things. Rejoicing in the Lord is a great discipline. It helps you to see and believe and express what, that you believe God is doing what he says he's doing. Because God has not abandoned his work, we are to express joy. We're supposed to pray continually and give thanks, it says. I find we often give up praying when we are in sin or in habitual sin. We feel that God can't really look at us when we're not doing well. And because of shame, we push God away instead of, instead of praying and seeking his face. In the Old Testament, the writers said they felt God has hidden his face from them when they were troubled. So when trouble came into their life, they felt God had hidden his face from them. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. You know, it's what we do. We hide. That's what we do. But the reality is that God does not hide his face from people. Not really. That's how shame feels emotionally, but God has not hidden his face from us. No matter the sin or how long it's been going on or how broken the relationship may be, God is there. God knew everything about us, including all of our failures that would happen in the future before he saved us, and he saved us anyway. The security we have in our relationship with God is sure. Our destiny, if we trust in Christ, is salvation. We are saved. We will be saved. Nothing can separate us from God's love. There's no sin or brokenness that surprises God or makes him say, I cannot believe they did that. Or still doing that after all this time, after all I've done for them. And all of those things, no matter what our sin may be, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ and his victory on the cross.
So no matter what, no matter for how long it's been going on, no matter what you did or didn't do, no matter how broken you are, express joy that God is still at work by his grace and love and care for you. And pray, no matter where you are or what you have done, to seek his face, because God has not hidden himself from you. And it's for this reason that you can also give thanks. Because God will do something for you if you lay down your shame and pride and seek his face. I don't believe God has turned away from any believer in our church. I don't believe God has turned away from our church, the bride of Christ. I don't think there's anything that we could do to separate us from the love of Christ. There's no reason, in other words, not to pray and seek his face because his face is not hidden. It feels hidden sometimes, it is not hidden. Our emotions are treacherous and sometimes teachings of the church have been treacherous as far as our relationship with God goes. And they ruin the sense that the grace is freely available to us so we can come to God no matter what. So I'd say this week, in your moment of deepest shame and difficulty and failure, if that's where you are, I'd say pray. Ask God for help. Rejoice that he's working in you. Seek his face. Give thanks for whatever you can think of. There's a lot to give thanks for. And if you still sin right after you pray, know that his face is still not turned away from you. After you sin, rejoice, pray, give thanks, invite him into the broken pattern. Know that nothing can separate you from God's love. Keep going. We're not going to get help from God to overcome in our lives unless we continue to seek him, even in the midst of our shame and failure. Um, I think it's said, you know, you, you wouldn't take a bath after taking a shower. You know, you're already clean. And God has made us clean through Christ. We can come to him. We can receive help. We can, we can rejoice. We can give thanks. We can pray continually because we are always meaningfully connected to Jesus. His work cannot be stopped. And even in the, maybe our greatest transformation could happen if we pray, rejoice, give thanks in our deepest place of failure. Finally, Paul encourages us to relate to God in the form of his Holy Spirit. It says in verse 19, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. In our church fellowship, we need to be very careful not to be scoffers and mockers of God's work in the Holy Spirit. That's, what, that's from Psalm 1, I believe. It says, blessed is the person that doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. And that, this whole idea is that the work of the Holy Spirit can be unusual, and many times we're very cynical towards it. We scoff at it. Sometimes we feel envious of the work that happens that doesn't involve us directly. But the Holy Spirit often will do things among us that we don't expect. It says, do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt. What this is talking about is actually those words from God that are given as encouragements in the church. So a worship leader says, I really sense that God is saying this. We're not to automatically dismiss that as someone's um, a fancy of their imagination. We're not supposed to put it away and say, no, that's not something that could happen. We are to take a prophecy that someone shares, a word, and we're to take it to heart. We are to meditate on that word and ask God, is this from you? Is this for me? To be more open to what God might say. That's what testing is all about. It's not about rejecting outright, about being cynical, about being envious, about mocking, about discouraging. It's about receiving and saying, this really very well might be from the Lord. I need to take this to heart. 
I think some of my best times with God has been when the worship leader has said, here's your, like Julie did this morning, here's your time with God. What's he saying to you? And then hearing from him or hearing from him through somebody else, taking it to heart, testing it all and lining it up with scripture, make sure it's scriptural, make sure it's holy and good, and then receive it as an encouragement from God. And I think that we have to, we have to always work not to nurture an inner, inner critic or contempt for the work of the Holy Spirit like this, even if it's unconventional to us, even if it's not from our past. We must not hear a word of encouragement and immediately dismiss it because it doesn't seem special enough to us or, uh, or like something we think God would say. We need to take it in, listen to it, measure it by Scripture, and be open to the work and words of the Holy Spirit. So many words that have been given to me have sustained me over the years. I got to share with the worship team a word God gave me five years ago when I started as senior pastor here, and that still sustains me. I have it written down. I have it recorded. I've seen deeper and deeper meaning of it over the last five years and what it means for me. It's instructive. But I really believe because God is, is non-coercive, he's, he's gentle, he's humble in nature, and the work of his spirit is so, so delicate, often such a whisper, so quiet. Um, I feel like when we, when we in any way in our hearts or outwardly despise, mock, or harden our hearts or scoff at the work of the spirit, even prophecy, I think we end up seeing less of it among us. We expect it less. We see it less. And, uh, and I feel dead serious about the desire to hear more from God in our church. That's something I think would be great. I want to see more prophecy. Um, this is not foretelling the future, but just words from God that are for our good in the moment. I want to see more of that in our church fellowship. I want to receive more of that and share more of that. And for us to be able to share and admonish one another in words of prophecy from the Holy Spirit. And that's our responsibility towards the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Imagine that, quenching the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit is God. Do not quench the work of God by His Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I think Paul, would, Paul was talking to a people who were apparently receiving prophecies from God. And so uh, I think maybe, maybe for us, Paul would add, seek the Lord for a word for your church. You know? Maybe that's not a huge part of our culture. It's a little part of our culture. Maybe we need to, to seek God more, and then we need to weigh what's said, and we need to take it in. We need to, of course, use Scripture as the plumb line, but there's so much encouragement and direction to be had in the prophecy of the Spirit. So this passage, you know, it's pretty loaded. It's got a lot of stuff in it. We see teaching on how to relate to leadership, both the formal leadership and other people that rise up in the body. We see how to relate to one another in humility and as sinners saved by grace. And we see how to relate to God and the work of his spirit among us. And I encourage you this week to go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 22 and ask the Lord, even remind, remind you, what did he say to you during this sermon? Because I am convinced that if we, if we were to seek wisdom and seek to apply and grow from this passage, that we could really do quite well. And I think in the coming days, it's going to be very important to take these lessons to heart because we are going through transition after transition. And there's, it's very relevant. We have both leaders. We have leaders rising up in the church. We have fellow congregation members. And we have the work of God in our midst. Very applicable. So take this to heart. Take this to heart. And I think that uh, I could echo 
Paul again when he says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. You know, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Lift up the weak and suffering. Humble yourself. Love and recognize the leadership that rises up within the church. Love God, give thanks, praise him, and, and seek and properly handle with respect and reverence the words and work of the Spirit among us. If we do these things in the coming season, we'll do well. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Jesus, I just love your church. I thank you so much for them, God. I thank you for New Life Fellowship. I thank you for the privilege of having been this, the pastor of this church for the last five years. Thank you for the work that you've done by your spirit, even for adding and removing people from our church as you've seen fit. We rejoice even in sadness at times when that happens because we believe that your work is moving forward. And we believe, Jesus, that you are positioning us and shaping us to be the church that you're calling us to be at New Life. And we cannot say with certainty that we know exactly what that looks like, but you do, and we trust you, and we praise you, and we give thanks, and we pray continually for the church to be strengthened and lifted up, for leaders to rise up among our midst, God, for people to engage and love you, each other, and the work of your spirit, that we would grow in knowledge and wisdom and grace. I pray that you'd fill each individual person and this church in general with your Holy Spirit, that these, these things that seem like lists of teachings and laws that Paul shared, that they would become words of life to us, that become second nature, that we'd speak the language, God, that we'd really speak the language of Jesus from the heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me bless you. My prayer for you and my blessing for you is that you would find this September, this fall, your secret place with God, that you would be with him. You'd get in his word. You would hear his spirit speak to you. That our church would be built up as each part does its work. I bless you to be the church. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.